the biggest area for us at the minute is 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 within video. It's within shorter form video, published across all social platforms. Snapchat, YouTube Shorts, which is which is blowing up and is only going to go further as they see to you know to sort of improve the monetization tools available to publishers on there. Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. We take a semi-serious look at all the news from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you heard at the start was from my interview with Josh Nino, who is founder and CEO of Dexerto, an esports gaming and influencer-focused publication. We spoke about how Dexerto went about carving a foothold in a competitive market that is often unfriendly to newcomers, where an esports-focused publication looks to grow revenue and audience, and whether those opportunities are universal for all digital publications, and what he thinks is the future of sports and esports-related communities online. Before that, Peter, you actually have some publication news of your own. Yeah. After years of banging on about magazines, I'm actually launching a magazine. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Joanna, my publishing partner and life partner, um, was the editor for Word on the Street in the summer last year, which was a day, you know, a magazine in a day that was done from the Mag Street Conference. And she was just so buzzing on it, just both the process and the end result. And we both got talking and thought, okay, let's do this. <laughs> um, so now we're deep in the planning stages of the Grub Street Journal. We'll explain more about that later, uh, which is a quarterly magazine for people who make magazines. And are you, you going to do it in a day? No. <laughs> it will be a slow process. It's about, not, it's not just for people who make magazines, but about people who make magazines. Mm. There's loads of stuff. We do stuff about magazines and publishing. There's all sorts of, you know, podcasts, journalism.co.uk, all sorts of stuff about magazines. It's excellent. But we and they are so focused on media voices and they are so focused on the business models that we don't always talk about the people. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk more about people. And we're going to have a laugh with it as well. I mean, you know, you, you've met me. You know, I don't think, yeah, I don't think you could do this without it being a laugh. So it's, we're theming it, the Don Quixote issue. And the cover story is, what kind of idiots still <laughs> make magazines? If people are interested, where can they find that? The Grub Street Journal is on grubstreetjournal.com. And they can register for updates on that. Although the, the counters said 65 days for like four days. So <laughs> what's going on? That. Or they can go to my magazine diaries newsletter. You can find a link to that in the Media Voices website. And because one of the things, again, me being me, I'm going to try and document the process of this. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it, what's the process and what's the, what's the feels in actually launching a print magazine in 2023? <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing the slow, just like complete degradation of, of you over the course of the time yeah. up to publication and just like you at the start in a full suit going like, absolutely, we secured funding. And then like two days before the deadline, just like hair <laughs> wild. <laughs> it's like stained Tart- t-shirt. Tartan pajamas. <laughs> we have secured funding. It's my, Friggin' bank account. <laughs> <laughs> that leads neatly onto our first topic because what if that counter down to sort of launch day has decided to stick on 65 days because the AI that powers it has gone, there's no way he's going to do it by then. <laughs> <laughs> so I still want that's terrifyingly real. <laughs> that could have happened. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Esther, what do you, what does that lead us on to? What's our main story for the week? <laughs> I can't talk that as a segue to end all segues. Um, so yeah, the, the top story we're going to discuss this week is, um, so last week it was fairly widely reported that, um, tech news site CNET had been quietly publishing articles generated by an AI engine and sort of labeling them as published by CNET money staff. They've since relabeled that and have actually put a site clear disclaimer at the top. Um, but there's, um, there's a piece from um John Christian on futurism which goes through the articles that they cited as being like great examples of ones that they AI had written and it's it's like it sounds reasonable and it looks reasonable to somebody who's not financially literate but it's basically full of like <laughs> factual errors it's inaccurate um some of the some of the stuff that the AI some of the formulas and things that the AI was suggesting were was 
just just plain wrong um and so yeah john christian sort of pointed out some basic errors on financial advice pieces being published including things like 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 some really basic errors and things like explainers about compound interest how loans work (laughs) stuff that i looked at and i was like i'm not especially you know i'm I'm, I'm not a financial expert by any means but even i can tell that's a little bit off a loan is free money you never have to pay it back (laughs) it's it's just raised all these questions again about i I think sort of the the, the big question is like, if, if this is a test that was in the early stages, this should be when editorial is at its most vigilant about this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And this, this has just completely passed them by. It's an interesting, wasn't it? And the, the timing of it is, is perfect because this has been the week where everybody has been talking about AI in terms of what that's going to do to power media companies, uh, financial institutions, and even sort of entertainment over the next couple of years. Chat GPT three has been the focus of a lot of this just because it has become much more widely available. But <laughs> I love that first quote that you've picked out here, which is the problem. It's kind of a moron, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is interesting because it's both a very human understanding of what the AI has done, but it's not necessarily representative of why the AI has fallen down. And I wonder to what extent we're in the midst of this transition from automation to creation, and we're seeing kind of that that falling down. Well, I think human beings are just properly conflicted over this. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, that headline is brilliant, or it's a subhead, whatever, uh, it's calling it a moron. And you're right, it's not a moron. The people using it, or managing it, or morons, in, or just in, deploying in it a, and then leaving it to its own devices. Particular context, um, but I think we've got this expectation that machines, you know, this weird sci-fi expect- expectations that machines are smarter than we are, mm-hmm. and yeah, they're maybe sometimes smarter than we are, but the real point is they're faster and cheaper than we are. You know, what's and I really think interesting. a lot of publishers are slipping into that kind of. That's the way they're trying to use it. So I just reread The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Henlon. And in that, he's talking about, it's it's one of the first early examples in fiction of a truly sapient AI called Mikey. Um, and even that, he's sort of, this is written like in the 60s, I think. And he's talking about, yeah, it can do that kind of the maths very well. But in terms of understanding stuff like humor and how you actually sort of like formulate a sense of what it means to be cheeky, it can't necessarily do that. And it's kind of that those limitations which we're running into when we're talking about using AI in journalism and, and creation. It doesn't do nuance, right? Mm-hmm. That's the point. But this <laughs> I think the, the problem with this is that this isn't nuance or creativity. This is oh, this, this is basic <laughs> factual mathematics yeah, of yeah, how, yeah. how to calculate like yeah. interest and loans. And it's 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 not that it's sort of you know fail to create a, anything emotive or whatever, or it's in a failure free emotion. This is this is basic factual errors yeah. that are creeping in and they're not being caught by the humans that should be catching them. But they, and they said you know, before this, before the, the mistakes were caught, they said that everything was being reviewed and fact-checked and edited by human beings. So, which makes you think, oh, what's the process? Well, hey, how good are the human beings in this <laughs> in this equation? Yeah. But this, this, is, this isn't a new, well, the technology oh, isn't new, is it? And like, no, Chris, you said you've been writing about this for a long time. I, it has been five or six years since I've been talking about publications using AI in the newsroom. And it's always been for rote stuff. Pulling in, you know, it's it's been less about creation and writing articles and more about helping journalists do their job yeah. as an AI tool to pull in financial information and kind of publish it in a very structured and staid way. But I do feel like just this last week, I've been taking crazy pills because it's like people have forgotten that we've been doing that for half a decade at this point. And everybody's been like, oh, oh my man. God, have you seen this new tool? How many articles have you read that the headline is a robot's coming for your job? Yeah, Forever, I, re- right? I used to, I was writing them five, six years ago. <laughs> okay, but, and I, th- I think that the, the article, and you know, I'll put this in the show notes, the conclusion of this article absolutely hitting the nail on the head about why this is now such an issue. Um, and, you know, John Christian says that it's not just AI that's the issue here. It's that AI is maturing at a moment when the journalism industry has been hollowed out by a decade-long race to the bottom. And he says that it's a perfect storm for media bosses eager to cut funding for human writers. And that's where you wonder, you look at these CNET things and you say, is this that they have been fact-checked by, you know, like a, a very junior copywriter and not a financial expert? Because that's that's the sort of person that would have picked up these mistakes. Mm-hmm. And is this just going to be used as an excuse to to cut expertise? 
Well, there's, there's a slight corollary to that as well. I was going through back through uh, Neiman Lab predictions for this year, and there's one from uh, Janet Haven, who's the executive director of Data and Society. And she said, it's not going to be the publications, the legitimate publications like you know CNET, The Guardian, all these guys who use this and use it poorly. Um, it will be the people who use it nefariously. So she said, we will see ChatGPT and tools like it used in adversarial ways that are intended to undermine trust yeah. in information environments, pushing people away from public discourse to increasingly homogenous communities. Effectively, it's going to be those other platforms, the publications that thrive on just having attention, that are just going to use this to to pump out stories that contain deliberate misinformation and disinformation. I wrote a little thing for the International Magazine Centre about this, talking not, not about text, talking about images. And there's two there's two worrying things. One is is that kind of benign laziness, and the other one is that malicious kind of setting out to create whether whether it's deep fakes or whether it's even just dog whistle type uh, images that are. Uh, but that malicious intent is kind of scary. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's fun that we are in our lifetime potentially facing Skynet. But the downside of that is that <laughs> we are potentially fun, facing Skynet. <laughs> um, there's, I don't know which one of you it was put this comparison with self-driving cars in the notes. It, it was in the article. Was it? Very good piece. Um, yeah. Researchers found that human safety drivers tasked with sitting behind the wheel of an autonomous vehicle to take over if malfunctions tend to quickly lose focus when they don't have to actively work the controls. The same dynamic may be at play when an editor is put in charge of approving a deluge of AI-generated explainers in the face of endless synthetic writing. Maybe it makes sense that human editors start to go on autopilot themselves. Actually, that's a really scary point. (laughs) That idea that if you don't, if you think you can trust the tech then you don't pay attention the same way. It's, uh, you know, appropriately named, it's it's Wally. You know, it's the fact that humans can just kind of go on autopilot and be piloted around the space station and not have to pay attention because they trust the AI that much. Oh, this, this this is a huge trust issue for, for publishers as yeah. well because once you, you know, we, we, will, we will get all sorts of sites, all sorts of people using these tools to to produce all sorts of things but it's people will then turn to publishers expecting to be able to trust what they're producing and if they're also yeah. not checking what's coming out of this stuff it, it, it's hugely problematic i think the transparency issue again i mean we've talked about transparency in relation to trust anyway mm-hmm. you know show your workings what's your process who's doing what <laughs> it's the same thing for this you know, I think maybe we're seeing I, I actually haven't followed this story particularly closely in in terms of where it started, but I get the sense that CNET wasn't shouting about it before it had it started to go wrong, and so that transparency issue is maybe playing into to this. Um, I don't know. So it's I, I I find that I'm so conflicted by this. I really am. I think anyone that can any any organisation that can automate. And cleverly automate really, really boring volume-based tasks like annual reports or the weather or house prices or junior sports or all of those things that have just got huge amounts of data but very structured. Mm. Um, I think that is absolute, absolutely makes sense to do that. But where you're, where you're kind of where there's the solutions aspect, which sounds like, from what Esther's saying with the financial stuff, it sounds like there's a solutions aspect to some of this job. Well, it was, it, so Casey Newton um, wrote a piece for The Verge about this. He said that what CNET was doing, it, it was essentially a monetization thing where they they wanted to publish large volumes of really cheaply produced text um, to right. get to the top of the search results oh, okay. in a bid to capture what he calls the monetizable eyeballs of the financially curious. Now, they're not the only publisher who are incentivized well, by that sort of thing. Oh, no, well, they just found reach. a way to do it that's cheaper. What reach, yeah. That's what Reach does, except it uses humans. <laughs> For now. The interesting thing there is I read a couple of things this week that are basically saying, yeah, if you do... If you use AI to completely generate an article from start, it's actually going to negatively impact your SEO. And a couple of people have pitched me articles about how you actually navigate around that. Um, it's, you know, it remains to be seen how likely and possible it is to detect this kind of stuff in the long term. But yeah, that's a, that's a very cynical. Okay. So, but let's get to the root of that one. If you're writing just for SEO, holy crap. Mm. You know, I'm holding my hand up. I've, I have done that. 
um, you know, whether it's content marketing or whether it's just to get people to a website, I've done it. But if that's the only thing you do, then I, I mean, there's issues with that. Reach is actually quite a good example here because you, you you could say that this is a perfect example for the AI to write the the SEO, the, the clickbaity stuff, um, and then you can free up your reporters to do local reporting. But that we all know that absolutely won't happen. And what happens is that the AI will write the stuff and the reporters mm. will get cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. Or they'll just eat, they'll go into kind of a pre-run AI generated article and maybe just add a little bit of local flavour. Which... Some of those articles look like they've been written by robots anyway. <laughs> I was, it's interesting. I was talking um, on a panel about this earlier this week. I think this is an opportunity for smart publishers to use it as a point of differentiation and kind of say, well, look, yeah, absolutely. We are aware that AI is a tool and we might deploy it when it's appropriate, but here is human analysis and potentially you can have a chat, you know, in, in the same way that we're bringing audiences in the newsroom now. Maybe, you know, we open a line so you can talk directly to the, the human author behind this. We could almost do with doing a big deep dive report and podcast documentary into this topic, couldn't we? Mm-hmm. We should do that. Maybe, maybe March something. <laughs> and moving on now to news and briefs. And that is a big old update on Elon Musk's Twitter this week. From <laughs> you called call it news and briefs and it cracks me up every time you say that. I'm just going to. Image of someone stood in the jockey short life front. I'm sad. I'm that's sad. what that's that's what we need to do for merch. What <laughs> media voices? Media knickers. voices briefs. Yeah, news and briefs. Oh, okay, oh, I love it. Who, which of us is going to model them for the for the page? No, uh, nobody wants to see me in that at the moment. Absolutely, <laughs> we must know someone that actually would look good in a pair of briefs. If you want to model a brief, get. <laughs> Actually, okay, at what point do we buy our briefs? Email us. Oh, God. I, I don't want to see us on like the Press Gazette for like popular <laughs> media podcast shamed for soliciting knicker photos from audience. <laughs> oh, hey, back to the story. So, the, this big update on what's going on at Musk's Twitter. Obviously, it's been long enough now that people can start digging into the circumstances. And there's a pre post mortem in The Verge about the realities of the takeover, which is fascinating to hear how a lot of people internally went, yay, Musk, and then immediately got sacked um, to the Guardian article that we're going to link in the story, which demonstrates the financial straits in which the new Twitter's found itself. So it's been a 40% year on year revenue drop. Most major advertisers are still pulling spend. For- I read something in Axios last week that they'd, they'd actually increased all their bookings for revenue for 2023. So I think that might be for very, very low value stuff. They've also done some ah. incredibly generous um, matching of, of ad spend. So it's less about them being in a good financial position and more about them trying to mask the fact that they're not. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, it's all problem, all bad for Mr. Musk. Um, and the rollout of the new For You algorithmic feed has also pissed off some users, including me, for the simple reason that A, it's crap. And B, almost every other social platform that you can name has tried exactly this and then had to walk it back. So most recently, Instagram had to basically do a very public apology and say, actually, we're rolling back the amount of of algorithmically generated recommendations that are going to be in your feed. So all we need really is a Kardashian to come onto Twitter and say... Must must said that I think yesterday somebody was complaining about it and he responded being like, "Oh yeah, that was that was an error. Like we're rolling it back this week." Uh, it's just, <laughs> it's just really hard to keep up with what he's what he's talking about though because he he was threatening to like not pull the plug on review, review like <laughs> yeah. two hours before he pulled the plug on it. Who knows? I, mean, who knows? I have to say that, that I didn't actually notice that much of a difference to be honest because it was crap before. <laughs> and my my feed these days is just full of head right wing head cases. Anyway. I've definitely consciously been spending more time on LinkedIn. Gross. It's its own weird space. But those those posts with the friggin' bullet point emoji bullet points in them, holy crap. Yeah. Keep it under 150 watts, people. What about 280 characters? That sounds about right for that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> nice one. Um <laughs> so this week. In the newsletter. So there was this article, an interview, and it's a really good interview, actually, in the Press Gazette with Richard Campbell, who's the MD of News at Future. He runs the, the week in a week junior. And their headline on this interview was, um, we're US first. And it's, this is something that Richard Campbell said. And everyone else like, oh, 
or at least everyone with any memory of Future's <laughs> recent past, I think. Um, and I said in the newsletter that the quote made me queasy, and I <laughs> almost immediately got a DM, uh, and actually on Twitter, saying, I worry that your last line, which because it was the last line in my report, my little blurb, might be a little prophetic. <laughs> threatening to write a history of UK publishers' misadventures in the US. <laughs> and and the serious point they made was that is the difference between the UK and the US. And they said, this, this person said in the US, it was all about confidence and swagger and this belief in your own products. It's kind of go big or go home is a US sort of mantra. And that's utterly foreign to us. In the UK, I think there's a, we're much more, I don't know, leaning back, thinking, being a bit more defensive. I, I think, I think in general, it's it's the fact that it, they are such an established UK publication, mm. and they've got such an established UK audience. And the fact that when you know when the week junior launched, everybody was like, "Yeah, this isn't going to work," and it was in the UK it worked, and they've done they've done really really well with the US launches, but. Mm-hmm. Is this a sign that they're kind of looking to tie together those parts of the business more? In which case, I, they've just closed it, an office in Atlanta. I know, I know. I it's know. just a weird. I don't know. I just had. It's a great interview, and it talks about the differences between the two markets, and it talks about the strengths. And yeah, the, the American market is what two hundred and fifty million people, or whatever it is, and the British market is seventy million people max. So, yeah, I get that, the opportunities and that. But that framing, rather than saying mm. the U.S. is a major opportunity for us, it's U.S. first. If I was sat in some of these offices and someone said that, I'd be like, what? I mean, not yeah. my planning for 20 years for this business <laughs> and what, now we're all going to frigging Disneyland? What? Heading over to the new world. Yeah, I don't know. So I, it, the framing on it, I just found really weird. Peter, can we conclude then that Grub Street Journal will be going U.S. first? Absolutely not. <laughs> With absolutely no connection to um, briefs or burlesque at all, Axios Pro generated $2 million last year, apparently, with more than 3,000 paid subscribers. Um, so Axios launched its subscription business actually literally just 12 months ago. So that's that's doing really well. That's not bad. Uh, they charge $599 for an annual subscription to one pro newsletter. They've got a number in across different verticals. They've got like healthcare, tech, medicine, like all sorts of things. I, th- I think they've got a media vertical as well, actually. Uh, or you can subscribe to all of them for about $2,500. Um, <laughs> one piece, one part that did make me laugh with this piece is that, um, so did today's Kaylee Barber reported that the one year mark, they say their retention rate is 100%. Um, but they offer annual subscriptions, so the first of those actually won't have expired yet. That's so smart. Which yeah, she, she did point out. <laughs> so we'll we'll see how that goes over the next few months. But um, they are actually expecting to generate at least 20% more this year based on the renewals they've already sold mm. and increases to subscription packages. Now, obviously with Axios Pro, that's the sort of thing that you can get a company subscription to, you can expense it. Uh, I mean, generally, this was a very obvious market for them to go into. I'm not surprised they've done as well as they have. This week, I spoke with Josh Nino, who is CEO and co-founder of Dexerto. We spoke about what it means to be a gaming-focused publication when many gaming communities now cluster around platforms like Twitch and Discord, how not to alienate new readers. This is the first and probably only time I'll get to talk about Korean backdashing and footsies on media voices, and where he sees growth for digital publications. I can see the two of your faces. <laughs> but to begin with, I asked, uh, I asked him how Dexerto came to exist in the first place. Do we find out in the interview what nope. Korean backdashing and footsies are? Nope. Well, you've got to have to explain that. You can't leave that hanging. Nope. I'm a professional, a former professional gamer. I played for Dignitas, uh, you remember, about 17, 18. So you're talking maybe a lot, so 15 odd years ago, maybe a little bit more and whatnot. And so I've been pretty much growing up in, in competitive video gaming or esports as we now know it. And we actually found Deserto primarily to to bring a sports style, sports style, not sports overall, but sports style coverage to esports. Um, and that quickly evolved into an understanding that actually, you know, people follow sport. We all sort of follow sport because of the people, because of sports stars, because of the stories behind the sports stars, right? That's what enriches the rivalries, it enriches the wins, the losses, uh, and whatnot. It's it's a it's a you know eternal story. 
And obviously that applies to anything in which, you know, it requires competition. You want to learn more about the winners and the losers. So we, 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 we discovered our own tone. We established our own tone for that, a tone that certainly wasn't adopted anywhere else in gaming. Obviously esports is ultimately a section of video gaming, right? And actually, you know, from, from esports, it's as important as esports is and as, as, as cool as it is with respect to, you know, this emerging world of digital sports, it was actually, so let's call it, so it was real inroads that allowed us to truly catapult in gaming and become, take meaningful market share in the publishing world of mm-hmm. gaming from a new standpoint was influencers. We totally trailblazed influencers, you know, I, I call it evolutionary because would people have gone on to, to cover influencers at some point in time? Yes, of course they would. Because they are, you know, figures with large amounts of followings, but we were the first. We were took a bold leap. There was a natural overlap between you know personalities and players competing in esports. So it just made trailblazing influencers just a total next step, right? And that was really, you know, where we made our mark, put our flag on the map, and gave us gave us credibility when going into cover gaming as a whole. Because at the end of the day, you're not covering gaming in some respect, you know, then you're missing out on a huge chunk of the audience, rather. And the trick is really to create that connection between your your origin point, your your credentials, your your influencers, your esports, and sort of you know fold gaming into that, which represents the, the much vaster size or proportion of the market, right? And everyone is a gamer these days, anyway. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. See, there's so much there that we can unpack. I do want to quickly pick up on something you said, mm-hmm. which is about you know focusing on the individuals and really taking that sports led approach to kind of esports and gaming coverage. To what extent are influencers still central to gaming coverage? On one hand, you could say that you know esports is sort of this niche that is growing. It's it's a there is a big enough market in the niche of esports, but arguably influencers have overtaken it. And to give you an example, KSI he's not in esports, but he came from FIFA. So let's yeah. use an example like Ninja. He came. He was a former Halo Halo pro. He then blew up at one point to be called you know the biggest gamer or the most popular gamer in the world, right? Um, but I don't think it's true to say that influencers sort of overtake esports. Influencers is very much of a center of this emerging sort of world of, and it's much established now, of digital celebrity, right? Mm. And, you know, you have so much overlap. You have overlap. With influencer of a center, if you put influencer of a center of something, then you have overlaps with gaming, fashion, food, music, tech, because the influencer is everywhere. Influencers really are sort of disrupting advertising, and that is why they're so popular, right? Because they are, you know, becoming, let's call it the focal point of which you know, brands used for endorsements to drive sales, to drive interest and whatnot. Um, and ultimately, commoditization is the only way that market grows. So they are sort of the, 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 the focal point of this and so many areas overlap with it. But look, you know, in, you go back to, to something like an esports or even like a gaming, like streaming and gamers and whatnot, they are, you know, essential because I guess they give, they give a, let's call it another, or rather they give an icon or a hero dimension to the community. It's not only just people talking, sharing, and debating their favorite games, their favorite, you know, uh, you know, what's looking forward to in terms of new releases and what are favorite consoles. There are now authority figures in this space that which they can look up to, who sort of, you know, they watch more than they play the games themselves and whatnot. So it's a real rich dimension, you know, where they sort of, you know, the game is no longer just about playing. It's also about mm-hmm. experiencing it through the eyes of someone that they respect and love and adore and, and follow, you know. So you, you've preempted a couple of my questions there around sort of community and how you grow that. But you also mentioned disruption. And obviously, Dexerto's come in and to what was quite an established space. You know, there were some big gaming brands that had existed for, you know, decades at this point and sort of really found a place within that. So what was the positioning of Dexerto's to begin with and how has that shifted? Definitely from esports. It started esports, you know, um, we were and are the big, remain the biggest esports news platform. Well, esports is now one vertical within our sort of, you know, we, we have uh, we have gaming, we have esports, we have influencer entertainment, we have TV movies, we have tech and whatnot. We've dabbled, you know, in a number of different areas as well. Um, but esports was the original credential. And then that became influencer entertainment, right? So people who, you know, let's call you Mr. Beast, you disrespects, your ninjas, your Tim Tatmans and whatnot. Um, you know, Pokemans, Ramarams. It's, it's people who are sort of entertaining people en masse on social media. So that was, I guess, because there's so much overlap between those people and gaming, because all of them are playing video games all the time. Yeah. Um, or at least for a large part of the time, I've been playing video games and whatnot, PewDiePie. You know, this gave us sort of a, a, a really unique tone of voice and authority when it came to our view into gaming, because, you know, this is our stake in the ground. This is why we, this is, we, we, we serve a specific need around, you know, what 
let's call it fans and users want when it comes to gaming. They don't just want a review of a game that you would expect from a legacy publisher like an IGN or a GameSpot. They also want to know what people are talking about the game. And, you know, yeah. driving that conversation is what Deserto has done really well. We've driven people's opinions to a new level on social media, on website, where it now becomes, you know, it, it's, it has its own real sort of, you know, uh, prolonged sort of story that you have to follow through time and whatnot. And, yeah, I would say that this sort of encouraging and developing of conversations and things that people are passionate about within these games, within these franchises and whatnot, is what our speciality was. Of course, we do a lot of the, the bread and butter stuff within gaming that you would expect a lot of game publishers will do as well. But that is uh, an obvious, low-hanging fruit thing to do, especially when you have sort of authority that we've developed elsewhere. It just makes it low-hanging fruit. Yeah, certainly. And I think you're, you're totally right about sort of facilitating those conversations. I saw there was a post on there earlier about the Suicide Squad's Games as a Service um, integration, which people were kind of up in arms about a little bit. So, yeah, fascinating to see how you're sort of integrating with with conversations online. Gaming communities are increasingly clustered around platforms. So we've seen Discord making a big play over the last couple of years. We've seen specific subreddits per game. So how are you speaking to uh, gamers who... You know, their primary destination for community might lie elsewhere. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it's something that as a forum before Zodoserto, you know, so it was incorporated as a business, it was more of a hobbyist platform. And we were a forum. Um, you know, we're a place where Call of Duty players could go and, you know, just chat with like-minded people, go and find games together, find teams together and whatnot. And what happened? Social media happened. Mm. Twitter happened, you know, Reddit happened and 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 you know. This is where the community sort of drifted to. They they no longer use sort of independent forums. They use social media because you can be much part of a bigger conversation. Your voice can be amplified much further, or you can at the very least you feel that it's getting amplified much further, right? And you can also interact with these heroes and icons there as well. So there was a massive shift. There was a disruption in 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 the space, and you know user acquisition, let's call it, changed not just for us. It was changing for everyone. You know, legacy publishers, not many, maybe like an IGN again. Um, I think they still command a great sort of direct level of interest into the platform. They function compared to a lot of websites much more as a, a studio, in all honesty, a TV studio yeah. where the publishing model works. It's like log- logging onto a BBC or, an, or a CNN, right? You know, the, the publishing goes into there. It's quite sophisticated. So I think there is still real fan equity in, in legacy publishers, not many. And, it's, and it is eroding by and large because, and why? And why is that to the benefit of people like Deserto and, and others? Because user acquisition is now coming through social, it's coming through Google. People are typing specifically what they're looking for, and then they're going through side doors, be it through search, be it through social, be it through Reddits and whatnot. They're going through side doors, they're checking out what they want, and then they go back to those social media platforms or Reddits and have the conversation there. Mm. So in essence, what we're talking about will find its way, assuming that it's good content, it's what people want to read. And obviously the technical side, you know, let's call it the the business side, making sure that we are ranking highly across, you know, search and whatnot, have good social platforms, have good overall quantitative and qualitative authority. And our, our, our content news, entertainment videos will find its way onto these social platforms of these Reddits, and they will be discussed on those platforms. But you cannot go in and try to take our audience permanently away from there. We, we have to accept what it is. There's a lot of pros to it, by the way. Um, and except that side door traffic is is more and more becoming the highest portion of, of traffic for everyone, to be honest. I was going to say, I, I would not be surprised if some of our, if Media Voices listeners, who don't necessarily engage with gaming or with kind of gaming communities, gaming in a lot of ways did preempt a lot of what we're seeing other publications do, particularly around trying to build communities elsewhere. So when you're looking at a platform like Twitch, which obviously has, you know, huge audiences on there, but tends to be clustered around individuals or even some games, you know, you, you have people who are influencer agnostic, but do follow games. How do you feel, you know, Twitch is, is affecting your strategy you know are you thinking about having a a brand presence across there more regularly what's sort of the 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 strategy there so you know i'll start with twitch i mean twitch has largely helped to grow the market and a lot of publishers are stepping into that because it gives a medium for which you know influencers and gamers streamers everything vod creators on youtube they're all creating content which conversation can then manifest around right so it's 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 growing the market in that regard in terms of our own presence and, and whatnot the biggest area for us at the minute is is it's within video. It's within shorter form video, published across all social platforms. Snapchat, YouTube Shorts, which is which is blowing up and is only going to go further as they see to you know to sort of improve the monetization tools available to publishers on there and whatnot. And obviously YouTube itself, YouTube, let's call it 
legacy YouTube, YouTube proper is already huge and one it's, it's, it's dominant. So that's the area for us. Having a presence on something like live streaming and whatnot, while there is definitely a selective case by case basis that we already do do it in a lot of it when it's come to commercial stuff, partnerships, campaigns, the level of production and the sustained level of production, not just cost, but time required to sustain that programming is much more expensive and time consuming than doing shots, shots yeah. programming that lives on Snapchat or TikTok and whatnot. Right. So, you know, as a business, you, especially, you know, in, in, in times where there may be economic downturn, you can't overlook and say, where are we successful? Where is revenue growing? You know, and you look immediately towards places where we're having a lot of growth in users, a lot of growth in revenue, and that just happens to be social video. And with Twitch streaming and whatnot, that is riskier and yeah. it requires a lot more programming. It's much harder to keep an audience compelled over time as well. And as much as we do do long-form video, I wouldn't necessarily call it programming, whereas on a short-form basis, it absolutely is short-form programming, right? So, you know, I would say that in the long term, it's a stepping stone towards that. In the mm-hmm. short term, it's a very, very good compromise to not having a presence on live stream. Not to say that it even is a compromise, right? It's its own thing. But of course, yeah. having a live stream presence on Twitch comes with its own level of, um, you know, of, of benefits, of credibility. Um, do you need to be there? No. Is it very good to be there? Absolutely, yes. So I, I think you're completely right. In fact, some of the live streaming um you know, best the best marketing that we've seen on live streaming has required huge marketing budgets. So there was a uh, Ferrari one we just covered for the drum, which was, you know, that that took a huge amount of prep, and it was something that an individual publication couldn't necessarily do without sponsorship. For the listeners who don't necessarily know what short form video looks like for you, how do you describe the strategy there? What is it that you're actually putting out in a sort of practical sense? Yeah. So first and foremost, there are nuances between social platforms. So a Snapchat versus a TikTok because of duration of length, because of what works, because of what works for the algorithm. You know, is there any difference between a one minute and a three minute video video to to the user? Not that much. To the creation of that video? Quite a lot. So (laughs) style doesn't always change that much. It's often talent presented stuff, focusing around, you know, something that's topical within that respective sort of program. So for example, if it's our TV and movie vehicle, it'll be TV and movie. If it's uh, influence, it'll be influencer entertainment. If it's gaming, it'll be what's hot in gaming and whatnot. But, you know, it's often sort of like playing off what is hot right now. There'll be some evergreen stuff in there as well, because obviously people are always interested to know, you know, let's call it our opinion about things. And those kind of have much sort of more longevity or more more mileage to them and whatnot. But it is largely sort of, you know, a, a, a topical play across a number of different categories, across multiple forms of entertainment. Um, and, you know, despite some of the nuances between social platform, if you were to look at it at first glance, they're quite similar from a production mm-hmm. standpoint. They're actually quite different. A lot of listeners will be keen to hear about is, obviously gaming is a primary activity, and there are certain best practices around actually creating content for, you know, content in and around primary activities. So from Dexerto's point of view, how do you see yourself fitting into the kind of the average, I suppose, content creation work day, if you like, that kind of that, the, um, the journey that people take from kind of playing a primary activity, watching esports to actually coming to you for analysis? And how different do you think it is from more traditional legacy sports? So definitely driving, as we've already discussed, driving the conversation, we our tone of voice has a lot more flexibility to be able to do that, right? We we have to go in as appearing as a fan themselves. There is not always much benefit to DeSerto appearing as the absolute authority in the way that a legacy publisher might treat mm-hmm. review. Like, this is our review. This is the true, you know, you have to live, you know, this is a review worth, worth investing in, right, and whatnot. And it, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it plays its role, right? It guides people into finding the best game for them and ideally giving an honest review of a game and how good it is. But we're much more coming from a position of being a fan. Yeah. We're, we're on, on the floor. We're at the YouTube boxing matches. We're at the gaming events. We're at the esports events and whatnot. And having that tone of voice that really sort of is side by side with a fan, that brushes shoulders with a fan is, you know, let's call it, it keeps it a lot more conversational and encourages the fans to leave a conversation past a certain point versus relying on us to be constantly, constantly driving it from the top. See and that they, I think is fascinating, yeah, because that that almost flies in the face of what we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of legacy publications try to do is to appear as that kind of very authoritative source, almost a definitive, um, yeah, the definitive view on something. Whereas you're talking about this about almost community building in a way and, and being yeah. part of that conversation. I think it's important, you know. I I, I am I am a gamer too, you know. You're a gamer too, and um, I, I'm not sure for me. I still like, you know, I, I'm still a long form reader, you know, in sport and in gaming. 
And I like reading authoritative journalism, but I, I'm not so sure, but I'm just based on data, but anecdotally too, that fans are always going to take to, you know, let's call it their favorite journalist anymore. The, the, the power of conversation and the opinion is going back into the community and heroes and icons, not necessarily the reviewers and let's call it the writers and whatnot. I think there's a happy balance, a happy medium, right? And you've got to show that you understand the vernacular, you understand a sense of humor. You're not going to be late to something because you're too worried about keep making it prim and proper and buttoned up so that, you know, in, in, in order to sort of not come across in a, in a negative way for your brand, you've got to pull it off and you've got to be fast, you've got to be agile. And if you're slow, you're losing the game. And, if you, you know, the only way to be slow is if you don't really get it and get what the community wants. So we'd like to think that we get it. There's a lot that goes on. There's a lot to keep up with and whatnot. But what reflects the fact that we get it is that we're fast and we, we get it right first time, you know. And arguably that's why, you know, it works commercially as well, you know. Brands come to us and say, listen, you know, you get it. How yeah. do we get it right first time? So we're not coming six months late to something some big moment that's happened and we're clearly out of touch as a result, you know? <laughs> Which, yeah, we've seen far too much of, I yeah. think, not just within that gaming space, but more generally. How do you balance that need to, you know, speak authoritatively and as part of the community with, I suppose, audience acquisition? Because there are going to be very few people out there. And oh, I, I can almost guarantee that almost nobody listening to this, for instance, will know what Korean backdashing is in Tekken or kind of <laughs> what, you know, what wave dashing is if you're looking at Melee. So how do you actually go about making sure that we are, we're talking about that in an authoritative way? that doesn't necessarily put off new audiences interesting question um i think you there are ways you know before you even come to publishing content by showing that you are let's call it speak you have a direct relationship with influencers you know you are speaking with them online you have a let's call it a level of banter with them we use it within our own programming not just commercial but organic content as well and i guess there is a bit of osmosis there in the fact that you know if influencers are working with us, you know, appearing on our content, in some cases driving our content and whatnot, that in itself has authority and status and credibility. It's his own for, form of authority without having to, you know, go by the traditional definition of authority, which is often like, you know, it's my opinion of it, our opinion is the only opinion sort of thing and whatnot, right? There are different ways of sort of developing that, that equivalent synonymous status with authority. I, lo I love that description of it being its own type of authority. I think that's that spawn. You mentioned when we were talking about uh, short form video before, you touched upon monetization. Where do you see there the being opportunities for more monetization around what you're doing? And so, what are your current plans to, I suppose, build that revenue and make sure that you are, you know, actually growing? Absolutely. The, the eternal question, you know, for yep. uh, the businesses and, um, you know, especially relatively new ones like ours. And I think it's about, it's about seeing, seeing the, what what the opportunity of doing something that is high in quality but low in cost can lead you to short form content can become so much more it, you know arguably with us it starts with editorial article that is you know sort of editorial written content that can then become a short form program that can then become something a little bit more longer form or even on site where you know we take a one of our channels and we do a podcast or we do like a, we go to a YouTube boxing match and we create a coverage program around it. And then before you know it, it becomes a long form video series that is on the ground live at venues and whatnot. So you can really see where something can go because when you, when you have those fans up and everything, the fans want to see that become multimedia. They want to see it take shape in what is probably logically progressive ways to see that kind of content develop in the same way that a humble YouTuber can go on to become a music artist one day. You know what I mean? There's a natural logical... It's aspirational, yeah. Well, yeah, there's a logical, logical approach to everything. Um, you know, the, the multimedia aspects and tapping monetization is, you know, probably the, 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 let's call it the, the clinical answer to that, right? Looking where you can sort of take this content elsewhere and use those input tools and those platforms to monetize. Of course, bring your own efforts, your own direct sales efforts as well to add further premium, you know, premium to those content. But... There's a lot of sort of self-serve monetization out there that makes it for all businesses a very, you know, much simpler, much more cost-effective start before you start thinking about direct brand deals, which we do a lot of now with this content, which is great, you know, because it means that we can take it to levels in partnership with brands that you can't necessarily do with just self-serve monetization. 
Absolutely. And in terms of kind of the brands that you're you're talking to, I know a couple of years ago when I was looking at this, there were a lot of more mainstream brands who were finally deciding to get into it. Gillette was all over esports for a while. Where are you seeing sort of growth in terms of brand interest in appealing to this and into your audience? They definitely they definitely still see gaming as everything. And you know, things like esports, they did have to have, you know, let's call it a pre-existing connection or mm-hmm. an obvious sort of connection between what we're doing and something like sport that can easily translate over to e-sport. But by and large, you know, brands, agencies, they're seeing it as gaming. So, you know, occasionally there are opportunities to sort of sell in and talk about the dream of esports and, you know, that's called like other more sort of you know, niches within gaming as a whole. Um, but by and large, it's, it's the gaming aspect. It's being uh, experts within gaming. And as I said earlier, helping them get it right first, whether it's, coming into a Call of Duty tournament, a League of Legends tournament, whether it's coming to a YouTube boxing match, whether it's doing an activation around an influencer who's hot right now, right? Mm-hmm. Just make sure that the audience, the, there are differences between these audiences for all those four or five things I mentioned. Make sure we know that the audience is different for those four or five things. Yes, everyone's a gamer, but as you get further and further into their communities, things change. Humors change. You get one little thing wrong and you show that you're not in that conversation and you don't belong there. You know, ostracize is a, is a, is a hard <laughs> word and whatnot, but you kind of do, you know, so yeah, people are protective about their passions in gaming, you know? It's, it's, it's really interesting because the I've spoken to a, a number of brands who are sort of looking to invest in uh, in esports and gaming. EE obviously just signed its, uh, it renewed its deal with Gfinity. Obviously, there's a sort of link there between connectivity and what is required to do esports. No, no, I was going to say, you know, I mean, certainly over the past, you know, few months, we, we did some really cool stuff with a couple of Kellogg's brands and a couple of General Mills brands. And look, you know, it's, it's straddled from, from gaming to entertainment just to streamer entertainment right to streamer entertainment and as i said they just wanted to make sure ultimately that you know that the audience that were hitting the creatives the approach they were all spot on with what the community were expecting so that it was adding value to that consumer experience around a piece of content and the content didn't just feel that it was pushed out purely because money dollars were being spent you know what i mean yeah no 100 percent. in fact from a uh, journalist point of view, I was always like, you know what, to what extent is that, is it true that gamers are more protectionist than everyone else? And then I remember a couple of times I've seen brands try to like horn in on one of my own gaming interests and I've got get out of here. From looking to uh, kind of taking a step back and looking at the, kind of the wider media landscape, where do you think there are opportunities to grow not in terms of esports and gaming specifically, but as a digital publication? Because obviously we've seen a lot of people go into, you know, audio sponsorship events obviously it's it's slightly different for you guys but where do you see there being opportunities more widely for digital publications yeah again another eternal question i think making your content multimedia if you're starting off in written content think about how many ways you can develop that content it, it, it can it's never going to be you know starting with an article how it looks as an article it's, it's going to have its own sort of you know peculiarities and differences when it comes to video, when it comes to sound and whatnot, when it comes to experiential, but, you know, start off with your, you know, your, the origin point, the beginning of your, of whatever it is that you have, your concept, your, your vertical, your audience, and see if you can take it on a multimedia level, as I already mentioned, you know, and I would say that, you know, you've seen legacy media, you do a lot of, let's call it experiential event stuff because they have, I guess, authority in celebrity world, in music, in fashion. And it allows them to then sort of take that into the real world and host moments that people can go and attend to. You see a lot of influencers, right, where they're starting up their own, um, you know, restaurants, outlets, their own fashion brands, their own sort of, you know, let's call it meetups and greetups in huge stadiums and whatnot. So there's a number of sort of different ways that influencers are doing things that publishers already did. But obviously, they're taking that a little bit in-house and whatnot, if you know what I mean, right? So, yeah, I would say just start off thinking about where you can make your your whatever content you have in the beginning and make make it as multimedia as possible. Nice. Fantastic. Well, Josh, thank you so much for that. As a final question, we ask all the guests to appear on Media Voices to recommend a piece of media that you've, uh, you've enjoyed recently. That could be a game. That could be, you know, uh, that could be a book, podcast, anything. It doesn't have to be gaming or esports related. Just something that you'd really recommend to the audience for the, either the insight or the enjoyment has given you. Uh, you, have, you asked me at a good time um, because I would love to be engaging and consuming much more content and entertainment and gaming right now. But actually, I just want <laughs> the back of uh, God of War 2018 one, the original. Because the Ragnarok hype totally, you know, yeah. it got me. And I thought, I can't just dive into it because I quickly discovered that this was always intended to be 
a two part two part sort of series within the God of War franchise. Um, it was old school sort of you know just sitting there till three a.m. and some some evening some nights completing the game, doing all the little bits, breaking all the barrels, smashing all the chests, <laughs> and knowing that I'm wasting my time, but wanting subconsciously to draw the game out because I was enjoying it that much, you know? Yeah. No point did I get fatigue. You know, if anything, I welcomed the idea of being on autopilot for multiple hours and then having achieved very little in the game as a matter of fact. <laughs> so I absolutely loved it. And I have just started uh, Ragnarok as well. So absolutely you know what time you enjoyed wasting isn't wasted time right and you know I, if this was a video podcast i would just drop footage of that first fight against the stranger where you know you trash yeah. yes uh, trash the house yeah. i would include that just to really sell it but josh thank you so yeah. much for that it's been really really interesting thank you thank you Chris. yeah appreciate it so there's lots going on with us as we start the new year. We're still sorting through our publisher podcast awards entries now. Um, hopefully the shortlist for that will be out very soon. Um, and we're also getting to grips with our new email newsletter system. Thank you very much, Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, but no, we're, we're loving being on Beehive. Um, you can subscribe to get the top four media stories in your inbox each day by going to voices.media. Uh, there's lots of sign-up boxes on the website, or we publish each day's edition on the website now, so you can click on the newsletter tab and see it there so all of the little snarky things we've referenced this week <laughs> um, get those in your inbox first and while you're signing up you can also check out our Ko-Fi page and our back catalogue of episodes they're both available through links on voices.media huge stock this is our 243rd episode so there is a huge stock of episodes on there if you want to go back and unpack a time capsule of media analysis from anywhere in the past four to five years which is terrifying a time capsule I love that idea we should do time capsule merch as well <laughs> so we're selling underwear and time capsules now. Very nice. Oh, that'd but, be cool. You could put, you could put a random story from the last five years in, on a, or like a fortune cookie, mm. but rolled up in a little screwed up, like test tube thing, and people would like randomly get. Or you could wrap it up in a pair of pants and then put it in a test tube. Yeah, because even if it's not a really good story, at least you've got a pair of pants. And now, dear listener, you understand why we have no merchandise. (laughs) Well, (laughs) until next week when we'll come back with another fantastic business idea like that. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.